Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by our hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 368 on our network. Before we introduce our guest, it's a repeat guest. We had him on right before Thanksgiving. I just want to thank a few groups of people. First, our audience, 60,000 subscribers, almost there, should be there by the end of the week. Grassroots MLB front offices, 74 countries were listened to. At the end of the show, make sure you do what you always do. Give it five stars. Write some nice comments because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. Uh, to our first partner in business here, Blackout Coffee. Be awake, not woke. Uh, they've been a great sponsor for the first month, and we're going to expand that partnership next week. We'll make the announcement next week. But uh, thank you for your support. Until this weekend, write in capital letters, David the number 20 at checkout, you'll get 20% off your next purchase and then 15% in perpetuity. We love partners that love baseball, love coffee, and certainly give us discounts. Uh, we'll take those friends anytime. And if you're looking for a stocking stuff for this Christmas, uh, take a look at Ted Kubiak's book, Old School, a uh, wonderful chronicle of his view on the state of the game. Um, and then he also has a companion manual with it, a fielding manual. Uh, it's a smaller book, but it goes in depth on the proper ways to field the ball. Totally different than what you're seeing out there on YouTube and all the gurus. So I recommend those two books for the holiday uh, for you. Uh, we're about to embark on the first uh, podcast of a Friday doubleheader. This will be followed by The Sauce uh, with Tanner. Tanner takes on Paul Feinbaum, uh, college football experts, Paul Feinbaum and Joel Klatt today. So our 13-year-old in-house experts going to go head-to-head with two of the college football analysts here, so we'll see how that goes for him. But with that, I want to introduce uh, Dickie Knowles. Dickie, welcome back to the show. David, it's great to be back. Yeah. I know this episode, and I'll, I'll kind of let Mark and Will tune into it, we've got, a lot of ton of, we've got a ton of information about your position with the Phillies. Very unique. It's not one that people uh, talk about day-to-day, but it's such an integral part of these these young young men's growth in the game and their their life outside the game. Um, but you, you touched on a little bit of a per- personal experience that uh, that kind of drove you to be extra helpful in this position, um, a bigger battle than what kids, uh, these young kids are going through on the field. And uh, we, we're going to try to touch on that in, lo- in a more depth today, if that's that's OK. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, Will, Will and Mark, you want to I'll let you guys lead off with first questions. I'll go yeah. first. Uh, go you know, Dickie, we. Uh, had a conversation recently with some people, you know, and uh, we all leave our footprint on earth here and uh, getting to know you and the footprint that you are now leaving on this earth as a high, high moral and value Christian guy that is helping so many people. And, uh, you know, Dave and Mark and I talked after your first show, uh, uh, how much it would be beneficial because there's people out there that are going through the same struggles you went through is to talk a little bit about your journey that brought you uh, to become sober uh, and the Christian man you are and the person you are who is now giving back and helping others. Well, you know, Will, <clears throat> I, I, uh, 
I, I got sober on April the 9th of 1983. <clears throat> a lot of people think most of my life was spent drinking. And of course, today with the way they look at marijuana, um, I, I, I called that doing drugs. And uh, that was a drug that I was doing. I was smoking pot and drinking. Uh, when I was in high school is when things kind of uh, went out of control for me. My, my sophomore year, I was still going to church, still doing the things I wanted to do to become a major league baseball player. I, that's all I wanted to do uh, since the 69 Mets won. And I fell in love with that, that baseball that, that year. And uh, my team was the Atlanta Braves and Hank Aaron. And uh, my pitcher was of course, Tom Seaver and then Reggie Jackson, all the heroes that you see growing up, you wanted to be like them. And when I was in 11th grade, towards the end of my 11th grade season, that's when I started to drink a lot. My popularity in sports kind of led me to be around a lot of people. I always wanted to be around and be popular. Um, most of those guys were not doing the right things in life. And of course you got girls and, and, and then and the, and the alcohol starts. And not that everyone has the same problems that I had with alcohol. It's just like alcohol and me didn't get along right away. So when I went through some tough times, it carried over to professional baseball. I tell people all the time that professional baseball saved my life. A lot of people start drinking in professional baseball, but it kind of saved my life. It took it a while. You know, I, saw, I got drafted by the Phillies in 1975 uh, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, went up to Auburn, New York, which is one of the greatest leagues in baseball. It's no longer there, which is a shame. Yep. We played in the NYP League and uh, – my first year, I got arrested. Uh, there's been all kind of rumors about my life and stories told about my life. And it said the Phillies set me down and told me that uh, when they signed me, uh, Dallas Green and and uh, Wes Livengood, my scout, said, we, we're not going to tolerate the type of behavior that you have had over the last couple of years with the Phillies. Well, that's not true. I, I When they signed me, they just signed me. When I went to uh, Auburn, I got arrested my first night in Auburn. Um, I was in a place there. Um, I, I usually know the name of them drawing a blank on it now, but it's a little bar near the prison on the way to the ballpark. Is it, was it jokers? No, it wasn't jokers. I, I'll think of it a minute, but uh, I, 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 I went at all. I played in Auburn my first year too. Yeah. You know, when you pass the, uh, it's, 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 uh, Oh, it's a little foosball place. Uh, anyway, I went in there. And uh, uh, we were playing foosball and and me and another Puerto Rican guy by the name of Orlando Asales, who was the youngest player signed at that time, uh, got into a scuffle with some of the people in there and and I got arrested. They didn't keep me overnight. They let me go because I was a ball player, but it didn't look good. And I remember coming to the ballpark the next day and June Reigns was my manager. And I walked in and thought I was going to get released and June Reigns just uh, – kind of smiled at me and said, uh, you know, you got a big guy coming in here in the next couple of days. He'll deal with what happened. I'm not going to deal with it. And I didn't know that big guy was going to be Dallas Green. Mm. So, you know, my life, my life transpired from there to pitching and, and, uh, and, and basically uh, uh, going out at night and partying and loving it. I thought this was the greatest thing on the face of the earth. And, I didn't have any other events that year. I went to instructional league at the end of 1975 and pitched pretty well. You remember we had two months of instructional league then, Mark and Will. Yep. Um, 
And then I went to uh, Spartanburg the next year, had the worst year I think any minor league players ever, ever, ever had. I had a 5.91 ERA. I sprained my ankle drinking two days before the season was going to start trying to slam a basketball at a, at a place we were staying at. And, you know, you didn't want to let, let them know you were hurt then. You tried to, you tried to keep that private. And uh, I came to the ballpark and told a lie about how I injured my ankle and Charlie Royals taped it up and I went, went to pitching and I didn't pitch very well. It took me a long time that year. I think it was about my first six or seven starts before I got more than three innings pitched because um, I wasn't getting anyone out, but it, my, my ankle was really bad. So I finished that year uh, in Spartanburg uh, with only one arrest that year too. And it happened to be on opening day. So Opening day, first two years in my my start of my career was not very good. Uh, I pulled a fire alarm uh, on the way back from a bar and got arrested for that. Still didn't spend time in jail. Got fined $25. They let me out of jail. Um, and Lee Ilya was my manager, and he fined me $25. And then the next year, I went to uh, Peninsula and got arrested again. All, all, all related to alcohol, but this time it was kind of funny. As a matter of fact, Jim Snyder, who made a big, big impact in my career that year, um, I got on the bus and I, <clears throat> and Jim sits in that front row and I said, Hey Jim, man, I can't go on this road trip. And he looked at me and said, what? Get on the bus, Dickie. And I said, no, you don't understand. I got to go find my car. And he goes, find your car. Where's your car? I said, I don't know. And he's looking at me like, wait a minute, you're telling me you can't go on this trip. You're telling me you don't know where your car is, but that's where you're going to go find your car. And he goes, get on the bus and tell me what happened. So anytime Jim said something, I pretty much jumped and I got on the bus and he said, sit down right here. Tell me what happened. And I said, Jim, I don't know what happened. I was out last night and uh, I was in somewhere down in Virginia. I mean, I just don't know where I was. And he said, well, uh, let me call some people and we'll see if they can find your car. I had a 65 Corvette. And when they found the car, it was sitting at the biggest shipbuilding yard in the country, sitting right there. And a police officer had pulled me over. When he pulled me over, I was with another player. And I had the top down and it was just, you know, spitting a little bit of rain. And police officer pulled over and walked up to me and said, son, let me see your driver's license. And I said, listen, you can't arrest me. I'm with the I'm with the Peninsula Pilots, man. I'm going to get released. And, and he said, have you been drinking? And I said, yes. I said, that's why I can't get arrested. I said, and he looked at me and he looked up and I said, there's no law says I got to drive around with my top up. And he goes, son, I'm not really worried about the rain in your car. I'm worried about those nine red lights you just ran. You're on a one-way road going the wrong way. And he didn't arrest me. Uh, but he, he, uh, he, he was going to... Uh, let me go. But then he decided that he probably needed to arrest me because when I got out, he didn't arrest me right away. But when I got out of the car, he was going to allow me to get a cab. When I got out of the car, I, I, I must have been really bad because then he arrested me and I got charged with a uh, driving under the influence. And the next day I got out of jail. I didn't know where my car was. So when I got to the ballpark, I, I, told Jim, Jim, I got to, I got to get my card. So they found my car and, uh, you know, I, I ended up with, uh, that charge on my record and, 
And then I ended up, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I just, I, I think I'm getting old here because I did not get charged with a DUI. He made, he made me get a cab home. Later in 1979, I got charged with a DUI. I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, Will, I tell you, get old, you, you forget. But that okay. police officer gave me a, that police officer did not arrest me. He gave me a, uh, uh, a, a, a good opportunity to learn from that. And I, we got a cab home. Um, so that year I got arrested and then in 1978, I got arrested and, and made it every year of my career so far. I got arrested in Reading, Pennsylvania for some of the dumbest stuff you could ever do. I walked outside, I was in a bar having some wings and Mike Norris, a pitcher for the Oakland A's was, uh, with us. And I walked outside and I remember I started to urinate in the middle of the street and, and, and they were drinking just as much as I was. And I remember the ball, ball players going, Dickie, what are you doing? And there was a police officer sitting across the street and he was in his car and he rolled his window down. He said, hey, son, are you stupid? And I was kind of on the side of the building. And I said, no, I'm writing my name. He didn't think that was funny. And he, he took me in. So here I am going into Oklahoma City, playing for Lee Ilya, getting close to the big leagues. And every year I'd swear it's never going to happen again. And seems like to start of the year, something would happen. And we were at a bar there called After the Gold Rush and got into a big fight there and got arrested. And uh, and that one was pretty bad. That fight was pretty bad. I got I got beat up. You know, I don't think I ever won too many fights. Everybody talks about what a tough guy I was. I think I lost every fight. I got beat up so bad that I had to take a, a week off and then come back and pitch. And that was when I got called up. And of all the dates, I got called up July the 4th of 1979 to the major leagues. But the reason I wanted to lay this out for you, if you look at the the pattern that was going on in my life, when I drank, I got in trouble. When yeah. I didn't drink, I, I didn't get in trouble. And when I was on the field, I worked as hard as anyone, but most of my damage came off the field. And when I got called up to the big leagues on July the 4th of 1979 with the Phillies, I remember it like yesterday. I went into the clubhouse um, and, and, you know, in 1979, that fight in Oklahoma City came with the other, the one time that I finally got charged for the, for a DUI. So I, I got called to the big leagues with this whole, this whole, um, you know, history of the minor leagues of getting in trouble. And when I got to the big leagues, I looked in there and I seen, uh, walked in, seen Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and Mike Smith and Larry Boa and Greg Maddox and Bake McBride, Manny Trio, all those great players, Bob Boone, et cetera, and Linsinski. And I thought to myself, and Tug McGraw, I thought to myself, this is where I want to be. I made it to the major leagues. I'm not going to let that past experiences bother me up here. I'm going to affect me up here. I'm going to straighten my life out. I'm going to have fun, but I'm in the big leagues and uh, things were about to get a lot worse. And uh, so 1979, I pitched pretty well. At the end of that year, the Phillies never told me this, but they didn't want to send me back to Charlotte, North Carolina. Everybody always has an excuse on why you do what you do when you're in, having problems with an alcohol. And, uh, you know, people would tell me sometimes you're okay when you just drink beer. Uh, you're okay when you, when you uh, just have a couple drinks of liquor, not a whole lot, uh, you're okay. As long as somebody doesn't start a fight with you, you're fine. As a matter of fact, you're the fun of the party for a little while. And in 1979, they decided that maybe it was home that was affected me. And they sent me to Venezuela and we went to instructional league. Then I went to Venezuela 
when I went to Venezuela, I loved Venezuela in 1979. My first game there, I pitched very well, dominated. And the second game, same thing. Um, third game, I think I was my last game there. I developed hemorrhoids over there. I uh, found something over there that I never messed with again. Uh, there was some cocaine over there. And I remember the night I did the cocaine, I was drinking and I wasn't smashed, I reckon. I wasn't still in my right mind. And some guys brought out some cocaine. I looked at it and said, they're stupid. I ain't doing that. And I watched them snort it up their nose and burn their nose. And and I was looking around watching people. And I thought to myself, they act like they're having fun and they're spending all this money and they're just standing in one place, gritting their teeth. I don't want to be like that. And of course, after a few more beers and some marijuana, then I decided to do it. And I, I started to do the cocaine that night. And next day I woke up and I felt like crap. And then the following day, the net, after the game was over, it was with the same group doing it again. All the girls were there and and then I had developed the hemorrhoids, so the team went on the road to Caracas, and I stayed back to see the doctor because I was standing in right field with Lonnie Smith, and he said, you got blood on your rear end. And I looked back, and I said, man, what the heck happened? So I went in to see the trainer, and I was bleeding pretty good, so they kept me back home, and they went on a road trip. So, of course, I was, I was supposedly uh, going to see a doctor that day, and I I never went to see the doctor. I went out and I partied and went with a couple of girls and was in a Miva Vaquita's restaurant. I believe that was the name of it. And some police officers came in. They knew the girls were dealing the drugs with the uh, American players and some things were said. And I got in a fight and got kicked out of Venezuela. It was a pretty rough event from what I hear. I don't remember much of it, but when you do something to get kicked out of a country, it's got to be pretty bad. And Tony Taylor was uh, my manager. He resigned. Ruben Omero was the general manager, and he went back to uh, the States with me. So when I was on that plane leaving Venezuela and scared to death because, you know, you get kicked out of Venezuela, it's a, it's a pretty good event. I'm thinking my career's over again. I'm on that plane. We're going to land in – I believe we're going to land in Dallas and then head straight to Philadelphia – and when we landed in Dallas, it's really, I, I just could see it, Dallas Green and Paul Owens bringing me in and telling me my career's over. I had all kind of thoughts going through my head, but none of them was, a, none of them were about getting sober. And when I went up to Philadelphia, I went in to see Paul Owens and they all told me that, uh, you know, what I did was wrong and that I need to take a look in the mirror, but no alcohol treatment and, of course, the rest is history because 1980, we won the world championship in Philadelphia, the first one in their 97-year existence. I believe it was 97 years. Yeah. And I didn't really have anything to happen in 1980 that really made the papers other than a fight down in Atlantic City that that we were able to keep kind of quiet. At least I thought so until, uh, until years later. And then uh, at the end of the 1980 season, I, I went home and was a world champion in 1981. I must have uh, partied a little more than I thought because I went to spring training and I gained a little bit of weight. So I worked hard in spring training, which I always did. And I made the club. But before we went up north to Philadelphia to get our World Series rings, I got arrested again in another fight in a bar. And when I came to the ballpark the next day, I looked about as bad as I did in the 1979 fight in Oklahoma City. I looked really bad. I had, my eyes were, uh, one of them were black. 
black eye and the mouth was all swollen up and had some straight cut, cut marks and scrapes on my neck. And I walked into the clubhouse and took my shirt off. And apparently I had some on the back, my back and, uh, tried to hide that and get dressed real quick. And Paul Owens called me in and him and Dallas Green called me in and told me they were sending me to Oklahoma City. And they thought that that I needed to work on some other pitches, but I needed to work on my life and decide what I wanted to do with with my career. And I knew they had uh, done that to try to straighten me out and it didn't have a lot to do with my performance. So I was very angry about that. And then they went on strike and getting your World Series ring in the mail. That was that was, you know, that was tough. And in Oklahoma City, I I, I started to uh, pitch a lot better and they went on strike and had a couple of battles in Oklahoma City on the field. My life was starting to spin out of control in Oklahoma City. I I end up uh, getting arrested again. Um, and, and that was my first lawsuit. I. I uh, jumped over a counter in a hotel in Des Moines, Iowa, after we got uh, – most of these now, David, Mark, and Will, I don't remember them, but I, I, I know I did it. Uh, we were watching a fight, had a rain out upstairs, and the guy downstairs continuously kept telling us, it's on and it wasn't on, and I'd go down and I asked him, and uh, Ozzy Virgil was talking to the young – the man. I don't think he was a young man. And the, and I, and Ozzy, I said, Ozzy, shut up. I got to get this guy to turn the fight on. And the guy told me that I was being, that I needed to shut up and I shouldn't talk to him that way. And I jumped over the counter and beat him up. And, uh, so they had to get me out of Des Moines, Iowa. And, uh, my reward for that was I got called to the major leagues when the strike was over. So I went back up to the major leagues in 1981. We finished out the season there. And I think the Phillies just got fed up with it, and they traded me. Dallas went to Chicago. I went to Chicago, and I was the first one traded. And I remember when I got to Chicago, I met this wonderful man, Ferguson Jenkins, one of my favorite people in life. And there was an article in the paper that showed my number 48, Dickie Knowles. And we went up to a banquet, and cold as could be in January. And I I read the paper. I seen it. It had 48 Knowles, and and the, the locker was on Rush Street. And I looked at it and I said, what's this mean? And I was having coffee with Fergie that morning. He goes, I think that means they think you're a drunk. And uh, Fergie always had kind things to say to me about taking a look at my life in a way that started to make me think. And uh, so 1982, I won 10 games, lost 13, but missed about a month and a half of the season for a fight in Montreal. Um, Could have had a much, much better season. Um, and uh, then, then uh, 1983 started, and that's when I hit rock bottom, as some people say. I think I'd hit rock bottom a few times, but for some reason, I just kept going. In 1983, in spring training, now this is, this is very interesting. In 1983, in spring training, Dallas brought this guy named Ryan Durham into spring training just to talk to me, myself and another young man, and I won't mention his name because he's, he's no longer – here to defend himself, he's he's passed, but he brought, we both were uh, drinking together a lot and we didn't hang around, which was interesting, but uh, he was drinking and I was drinking a lot and Dallas knew it. And every now and then we would 
you know, be together, but not a lot. And uh, so he brought Ryan Dern in and talked to both of us privately. And he asked me how much I was drinking. And I told him and he asked the other fellow how much he was drinking. And he told him and, and Ryan came back to me and said, you're a liar. I said, I'm a liar. And he goes, yeah. He said, you can't fool me. I'm a drunk. And I said, well, God bless you. I said, I'm not. And he said, well, this fellow over here told me you drink a whole lot more than that. And I said, well, he, he doesn't know what I drink. I drink with him sometimes, but he's not in my crowd. And so Ryan Durham looked me in the face and said, do me a favor. You quit drinking for two weeks. I'll be back. I said, I can do that. And he left and we went to play horseshoes at one of our teammates' uh, apartment. They had a horseshoe pit there. Well, I can't play horseshoes without having a few beers. And then they loved the way I cooked shrimp. All the guys said, hey, you can bring some shrimp? Yeah, because I cooked it in beer and, and, and some other sauces and can't have shrimp without having a few beers. And so I didn't quit drinking. When he came back, he met with both of us. And when he met with the other fellow first, he asked him, he said, have you, have you, did you quit drinking for two weeks? And he told him no. And he neither did Dickie. So I walked in and Ryan Durham said, did you quit drinking? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you're another, you're lying again. And, and I wasn't a liar. The way my grandfather raised me, lying in my family was one of the worst things you could do, lying and stealing. But here I, here I am lying about my drinking, and, you know, that's a part of the addiction. And so Dallas got involved and said, you're not drinking, or you, or you can go to the minor leagues. And I said, well, I ain't drinking. I'll prove to you guys I don't have a problem. That spring training, remember talking to Paul Molitor. He probably doesn't remember this. And I remember sitting on the field talking to him and a couple of guys from the Brewers because Dallas made sure I pitched against the best teams that year. And he was pitching me seven or eight innings every every game towards the end. And I threw a, a whole lot of innings. And uh, I remember them telling me how good my stuff was. Nobody had ever told me that before. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm sober now. And this is pretty good. And I'm, my fastball is picked up. My slider's harder. So I should have learned. But Addiction doesn't work like that. So I quit drinking. I went to Chicago as the number two pitcher. I got beat one to nothing my first start. We were going to Cincinnati, and Lee Ilya was going to bump me up so I could start on uh, five days because, you know, you have the two off days, off day in Chicago and then the off day in Cincinnati because they're opening up at home. And uh, a former Philly player came over to my room, and I hadn't had a drink in almost, I think it was like 37 days. Um, and he came to my room with his wife. We had an off day. I was pitching the next day. and I didn't know he was coming. I don't even, I found out my room number. He probably ran into one of the other players because we had a lot of ex Phillies on the club and he knocked on my door and he came in and he's not a rowdy guy, but he had been released, but he was rowdy that day. And he, he started to order alcohol, uh, Heineken, six pack of Heineken's from room service. And then it was another six pack and a burger. And, and he kept telling me, uh, you're not going to, you, you don't you never got in trouble when you drink with me. You're not going to have a drink with me. And I, I finally told him I'd have a beer with him. And that was the first time I had drank. Well, it didn't stop. We went out to a bar and some things happened. We left that bar, went to another bar. And that's when the fight happened. I call it the fight. I don't remember much about that either, but I assaulted a police officer that night. And in Cincinnati, I was sentenced to 180 days in jail and I got out of jail on appeal, but I had to go back to uh, Chicago because I'd torn my knee completely up. I, I couldn't walk. I tore the AC. Well, the police did. 
because I was kicking the top of their police car and when we were walking. And, and these are all things that I don't remember. Isn't that amazing? Talking about highly functional in a blackout because uh, apparently I did a lot of damage. And when I was setting up against the police car, one of the guys that I had, I don't know, broke his nose, busted his nose, came over as a bouncer. And he came over and I kicked it because he was going to hit me. And apparently that's when my knee was damaged when I got fired to the ground and probably was kicking uh, the police officers. And I don't want to make a point here. Those police officers basically saved my life because if they didn't do what they did that night and I didn't end up in jail, I think I was going to end up on the other end of a gun. And that had happened to me. And that's public knowledge too. That had happened to me in spring training one year in a fight right by our team hotel where one of our young pitchers got in a fight and I was helping him and, and the uh, guy pulled a gun on me and I didn't even stop. I didn't stop fighting, I told him he better pull that trigger. So I'd already been in that situation before. And I do believe that night on April 9th of 1983 saved my life. It was pretty embarrassing to not be able to walk and know that my career, that I may have destroyed my own career because back in 1983, when you tore your ACL and your knee, you didn't have surgery. So I knew I damaged my knee pretty bad. And Dallas had sent me to an alcohol center back in Chicago. He gave me the ultimatum, you go or you don't play, and I don't care about the player association. You'll never play again. I'll make sure of that. So I went into the alcohol center, and I remember being in there. The third day I was in there, um, embarrassed, not for me, but for my mother, and knowing that I had 60 Minutes and some other people had filmed me coming out of the jail the first day and and uh, – it was Cincinnati County County Hamilton Jail it was like a, a little minute, like a two year prison, and uh, I just kept thinking, you know, what have I done to my mother, you know, and what have I done to my parents, and how embarrassing is this? And so the press was always trying to get a view of me in that alcohol center, and everybody's trying to figure out what was going on. But third day in the alcohol center is when I knew I was going to stay sober. Uh, we were. You know, they do a lot of things in drug and alcohol treatment. They were we were playing this game where it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, role playing. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, when when you're doing this, uh, you know, you have you have a counselor in there wanting to get your feedback. And and uh, so the counselor was in there and he said, Dickie, it's your turn. Come up here. We're on a bus and we're going by Wrigley Field. So he's using all these analogies to get me to think about my career again. And some fan decides to, he had a bad game to step on your toe on purpose. What do you do? And he slammed his foot on my toe. I, to this day, I don't think he meant to do that, but he did. I pulled my arm back like I was going to hit him. I said, what are you doing? And he goes, hit me. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, hit you. I can't hit you. I'm already in trouble. He goes, the reason you're not going to hit me is your reaction was the same. It was there, but you're not going to hit me because you're sober. I went back to my room. I started to think about that. And I thought to myself, the guy's right. I mean, I've been in a fight many times on the field. You have to, but not like this, not like uh, when I get in fights off the field drinking. So after the third day I was in there, I, I was a Christian already. I'd become the type of Christian, Will, that I didn't want nobody to know I was a Christian. Right. I'd become that type of Christian because they think I'm a Christian. They're never going to become a Christian. And I remember asking the AA people, I'll read your AA book, but I want my Bible. I want to rededicate my life back to the Lord. And 
I remember one of the AA guys going, that's good, but you know, that's, that's not what this program's about. It's about, you know, you, you, your, your AA book will tell you, you have your God as you understand him. I said, well, can I have my Bible? And so I, 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 I got a Bible and I started, you know, I started investing in the program. I knew I was never going to drink again that day. So I invested in the program. And when I got out of there, I remember walking. I didn't want a cab home. I lived downtown. I didn't want anybody to pick me up. I included my girlfriend who would later become my wife. I wanted to walk home and I wanted to be out of that place because it was, you know, I've been in jail and I, and I was going to have to serve the rest of that jail sentence at the end of the season. And I'm walking and I'm starting to notice trees and people. And so, man, this sobriety thing's got a chance here. Look, I mean, I'm thinking different. And uh, so I picked myself up and played seven more years in the major leagues after that. But I was only a shadow of the talent that I had before that. And I knew that when I first came back to pitch with the Cubs, this is a funny story. I came back and Dallas Green, I'll give him a lot of credit because we had day games, but I had to, the commissioner made me uh, attend 90 meetings, in 90 days in Dallas. If, if the game ran late in Chicago, I had to go shower and go to a meeting. Um, and I, I respect him to this day for that. And there were times when they may have needed me in the bullpen and might it might have been a, a game where we got blown out or an extra inning game, and I had to go shower and go to an AA meeting. Um, but the first game back, I came back and, and I gave up a home run to somebody. And I remember the Budweiser guy coming down selling his beers. And I remember he goes, ah, that bomb, there he goes again. There, take him back to jail. I could hear that from the mound. We didn't have sellout crowds when I was with the Cubs during those days. Right. And I could hear that. And I thought to myself, oh, that's a rude awakening. But the biggest rude awakening that I had was the radar gun. My arm was still good. And the miles per hour on my fastball had dropped dramatically. And I would hear about it all the time for the rest of my career. Um, in 1983, I finished out the season, another horrible season. Um uh, you know, but I was sober. And in 1984, every time I got uh, hit on the mound, gave up a lot of runs or didn't pitch well, the press would ask me, you know, how are you doing? You know, the most important thing is, and Chicago press was wonderful with me after that, wonderful. Uh, they would say things to me like, well, you're sober, you're changing your life. And, uh, and I had one good game after I got sober coming back, not one, but I had a couple, but not many. I came back from, I shut out the Dodgers, nine in a complete game shutout. And, and uh, on the back of the plane, Jose Cardinal came back and he was teasing me. He goes, this Bud's for you, Dickie. And, and, uh, and, and kind of like saying, Hey, I love it that you're sober, but everybody laughed and it was nice because a lot of people didn't know what to say. Right. But I also would hear things like, I think he was a better pitcher when he was drunk, <laughs> when he was drinking. And I heard that a few times, Will, more than once, more than twice. Heard it a few times. Wow. Um, so in 1984, we're, we're, we're building a pretty good club over in Chicago. And I went in and asked Dallas to trade me. And he asked me why. I said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. Your manager don't like me. And uh, he, 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 uh, he said, well, that doesn't matter. He says, I want you down the stretch here. I know how you pitch down the stretch. And Jim Fry was the manager. Yeah. And I said, the second reason is I ain't stupid. You, you know, 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to stay on this club the way I'm pitching. And out of the bullpen, I'm not, I'm not effective out of the bullpen. I want to go somewhere and start. And I said, Dallas, let's just be real. I want you to win the pennant. And I don't think I'm in a position to help you. And I said, I'm becoming somewhat of a sideshow here. Everybody wants to, every game that I pitch bad, it, oh, well, at least he's sober. And when I pitch good, they're, they're wanting me to be Cy Young. And, and the press has treated me really good because it's a good story for them. Got sober. The guy comes back and, you know, like Dennis Eckersley got sober, went into baseball and became a Hall of Famer. Dickie Knowles got sober and can't get anybody out. That's the facts. And so I went to Texas and that's when my life really started to turn in the direction of met Sam McDowell in the direction of sobriety and, and, and being in a community and giving back to uh, others. That's what recovering people do. And that, that's kind of how I got sober right there. I mean, uh, at the end of the 1983 season, I'm going to share one more thing and I'll let you guys jump in. I had to go to that jail, which was like a prison. And when I went to that jail, I found out that you can tell a lot about a man in jail more than you can out of jail. When you look at a man's eyes, you know, if he's going to fight, if he's not going to fight, you can find out how tough you are when you go to jail. And when I was in jail, they let me out after 16 days, which was wonderful. (laughs) Leon Durham picked me up and I had a hundred and something dollars in my pocket. I went into a, it was a Krispy Kreme donut place and and he asked me what I wanted. I said, I want a big cup of coffee because it was taking me to the airport. I was going to fly back to Philly. I want a big cup of coffee and a dozen friggin' donuts. I haven't eaten in 16 days. And uh, uh, I, I remember uh, tipping the person like 20 bucks and he's looking at me. What are you doing? I said, man, I'm just happy to be out of there. When you go to jail, your freedom is done. You don't have freedom. As a human being, you're stripped of your dignity, your freedom and all these things. So I think it was a great lesson. I think the lessons that I got, you know, uh, uh, you either turn yourself around at that point or you're you're pretty dumb. Wow. Uh, It certainly prepared you to do what you've done, (laughs) you know, and, you know, being local and issues that have happened with players where you go, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But you, uh, your path prepared you to, to, to really help others. That's the truth. You know, Sam McDowell, when I met Sam in Texas and Mark, you know, Sam very well, I met, I met Sam and it was, uh, it was one of the great things that happened in my life. He walked up to me. He says, have you been to an AA meeting? I looked at him. I said, don't start. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, don't start trying to live my recovery. I, I know what I got to do. And he said, well, I'm just checking. He says, I, if you don't know where they are, I can tell you. And I, he said, and, and you know, Sam, Sam's like, he's like Dallas Green. He's like John Wayne, man. He, he said, well, what meeting did you go to? So I told him and he kind of winked at me. And uh, me and Sam had lots of conversations. He was the EAP of the Texas Rangers. We had lots of conversations about recovery uh, but the biggest conversations I would have with Sam, I, I knew Sam was a great pitcher. I said, Sam, it's like I've lost a lot. He goes, well, and every time I pitch and I had some great games, I could shut somebody out and throw a two hitter and I could pitch nine innings. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first game, I believe I came in relief there. I went about nine innings and came in for Danny Darwin and Danny Darwin was pitching, got knocked out in the first. I came in and won a $25 gift certificate to, to, to Chili's. Didn't know what a Chili's was. Ate my first Chili's in Texas. 
Then we went to Yankee Stadium. I made my first American League start with the Rangers. And first inning, I gave up a uh, infield hit, uh, a walk, and Maddenly blooped one over to left field. I realized after that I'd never get him out. And Winfield hit a grand slam. I look in the bullpen, and Danny Darwin's throwing in the bullpen. I go, I'm going to I'm gonna get taken out of the game the same way he did. But I ended up going eight innings that game and was winning eight to five. Um uh, you know, I, I had always gotten Dave Winfield out, but when I seen Danny Darwin up and with the bases loaded, no outs, warming up out there, and I went 3-0 and on Dave Winfield, I threw a strike, and I said, I know in my mind I'm going to throw it right in his wheelhouse because I don't want to walk him, and he hit a grand slam, and they set Danny Darwin down. I learned quickly that you give up a home run, that's a rally killer, but I stayed in that game, and uh, so I pitched some good games in Texas, but my bad games were really, really bad games. And uh, But I would hear it every time. What's his velocity? 90. And I'm thinking to myself, there's nothing wrong with 90. And I heard it from Dallas Green in 1984 in spring training too. And Bobby Searles was our uh, video guy and he did the gun. And Bobby would lie for me sometimes because we were very close from 1980. He goes, you're only at 88, 89, but I'm going to put 90 down. I go, thanks, man. Uh, my velocity became a big thing even back then uh, because I was not throwing the 93 to 95 that I was throwing. And, and those were mainly sinkers. And now I'm throwing 88 to 90 and uh, it's not good enough. And so I started to talk to Sam. I said, Sam, I'm not the same guy I was. And my arm's strong. It's good. You've seen it. He goes, you got to learn to pitch. So Sam always had great advice for me. And but mostly the advice Sam had to me for me was, you know, making sure that I never went back to drinking. And so when I got traded to Texas, the, it was a godsend for me to get traded to the Texas Rangers. And guys, listen at this. Dallas, when I told him I wanted to be traded, he brought me in in Los Angeles right before the first half of the season and said, where do you want to go, Oakland or Texas? And I looked at him and I said, where do you think I should go? He said, I think you should go to Texas. I know the people there. They have their, their pitching's terrible. So I went to Texas, but man, I think God's involved in a lot of things in our lives that we don't know about. And I had rededicated my life back to the Lord and tried to live as a Christian. And here I am going to Texas and I run into Bobby Bragan and I learned a lot about community and I became a great friend of Bobby Bragan's. And I run into Sam McDowell, who's seems like he was there to make sure that I wasn't going to have any relapses or, 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 or not go backwards, but he was always there. So that was kind of where the start of the turn for me to realize that life's, life's more than baseball. And, and I love baseball. It's my 48th year. I'll be going to 49th year this year. And baseball has been a big part of my life. But at that point, I was able to put the Lord first, family second, and then I had baseball down there too. Dickie, who was your manager in Texas at that time? My first manager, the first year I was there, was a guy that I really respected and loved to death. He was a nut, though, was uh, Doug Rader. Okay, yeah. yeah Rader man. seen some potential in me, too, for some reason. Everybody's seen his potential, and now I'm sober, and I can't get it out. I always had the excuse of drinking. Now I'm sober, and uh, at the end of that season, Rader brought me in. We were in Oakland, as a matter of fact. And there's that big desk that the manager has in Oakland. And that's one of day, uh, Doug Rader's meltdowns where he was taking us out of the game left and right for walking guys. And uh, he wasn't very happy. He came to the mound, and I thought he was going to kill me. Was, I, I walked Ricky Henderson on 3-2 pitch, and 
and Dave had taken out, I mean, Doug had taken out uh, a couple guys before me and I knew he was unhappy. So I started hollering at Ricky, swing the bat. And uh, he took me out. He took Dave Stewart out. He took, he was taking guys out. If you walked a guy, you were gone. So after the game, he brought me in. I thought he was going to apologize because he was real rough on the mound, but he didn't apologize. He, he looked at me and he says, listen, at the end of this season, I think you got an opportunity to be a great, good, better than average major league pitcher, but you got to learn to pitch. You got to come up with a change up. You got to have a change up. And he said, I want you to go to winter ball. And I said, Hey, Doug, I'm getting married. He said, anybody can get married. Not everybody can play this game the way you should be playing it. And you're not go to winter ball. And he slid that desk across and kind of got me in the chest. And I remember going back in there trying to move that desk because he's so strong. He just did it from a seated position. But uh, he was he was a great guy to play for, in my opinion. He was he was rough, but he was he loved to win, and we had a bad club, so it was a rough year for all of us. Wow, Dicky, did you you know through all your <clears throat> all the episodes you had and everything did, when you when you became sober, did you learn anything about like what your triggers were? Um, you know, that like, is an absolute. Great question. Um, and everybody's different. Um, I think my trigger was the first drink, but yeah, there was a, you know, they always say there's this thing called halt. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too angry. Don't get too lonely and don't get too tired. Lonely was one for me. That was a, that was a trigger for me. I didn't like being in a hotel room. Uh, I had to be out on the streets. I wanted to be out there. Um, to me, sitting in a hotel room, relaxing, the night before I pitched was about as far as, as I could go with relaxation. I was a very hyper guy, did not like sitting in a hotel room. And you know how we think uh, I'm going to get my rest the night before I pitch. And and so I would do that. I wouldn't go out the night before I pitch and it would drive me nuts. So one of the, one of the big triggers for me, I think, was loneliness. Uh, I, I think people don't want to admit that. There's all kind of uh, different facets of being lonely. Um, I just didn't like being alone was okay. It was just, I wanted to be out, uh, in the community, a community of drinking <laughs> community of women. Well, the, the, um, and yeah, I found the, out later there was a, there was another trigger for me that, that I thought was a big one for a lot of people is don't get too high and don't get too low. Uh, when things were going real good for me, I was more at risk to relapse than I was when things were going bad. I found that out about myself. When things would go good, I would sometimes think, why can't I be out there partying? Why can't I have that beer? But see, the Dallas Greens and the and the uh, Sam McDowell set up these parameters for you where everybody's looking at you. They know you're sober. They know you went to jail. They know you had these uh, events in your life, uh, getting arrested every minor league season you played in. And like I said, 1977, losing my car. I didn't get the DUI then, but I got the DUI later, you know, and I remember using that as an excuse, uh, but the DUI came in 1979. Uh, but having a DUI kicked out of a country and put in jail for fighting a police officer and, you know, they're there for our protection. How embarrassing is it to go into a, uh, you know, a jail that's like a prison? How embarrassing is it to go into a rehab? All those things, uh, you know, kind of, came to a head for me when I was sitting in a rehab, thinking about them, dealing with them and saying, you know what? 
not blaming all this on alcohol, but it was alcohol. Because after that, my behavior, I could walk away from a fight in a minute, run away from a fight in a minute. I would not. Uh, naturally, there's going to be times when you're in situations where you, I remember in 1987, I had to hit Andres Galarago and he's charging a mound. And I we're sitting there talking about the Bible with half the team the day before chapel. And I'm thinking, I can't fight. And after he fired two shots to my left ribs, I finally threw a punch at him and missed him and then uh, ended up hitting Jody, my catcher, in the back of the head. But uh, it was a fight that my heart wasn't in. But, uh, you know, and I I had other fights. I had started the first fight in Scranton Wilkes-Barre's history, Uh, 1990. I had to – Fergosi was our roving pitching guy and he asked me to drill one of their players who hit one of our players in the head and I hit him, he charged him out and we fought. But that's different type of fighting. You know, those are things that you have to do. And the fighting on the streets were, you know, I got stabbed once, I got my jaw broke. Uh, you know, I lucky in that fight in Montreal, one of the guys cut my jacket all the way up down the front. It was a leather jacket. It was a big thick jacket. Uh, so I was very lucky, had the gun pulled on me. So uh, once I started looking backwards to go forwards, I, I looked at LS, I had to deal with it. And I realized that, hey, those are things that happen. Now I'm going to live life one day at a time, not, not necessarily one day at a time, but one day at a time with my sobriety, because in baseball, you have to be where your feet are, but you also have to know where you're going and where you want to get to. And so I combined all that together. And I think the two things for me was don't get too high. Don't get too low. For me, it it, it was more, I had more of a risk when I was doing very, very, very good. Not when I was doing bad. That's, that's for me personally. And the other one was loneliness. Do you think, I mean, because alcohol is legal, uh, it's, it's probably way more of a problem in baseball than, than drugs would be, wouldn't it? I mean, more people. I, I think we're living in different times today. I think players are more healthier than than, than they've ever been. Uh, the drug that concerns me today is marijuana. Nobody thinks it's bad. I think it's going to the fallout of marijuana is going to be enormous. Uh, but when I played, it was alcohol, and of course, it's still alcohol. You're exactly right, Mark. It's always going to be the number one drug, alcohol. Um, but no, not everybody has issues with alcohol. I think my issues started with alcohol when I was in the 11th grade. I think if you really followed my life in the 11th grade and watched what alcohol did with me, you knew it changed my personality. You knew that I became a different person. Uh, you know, talking about getting too high and too low. Man, when I would drink two beers, I felt perfect. And then I didn't want to lose that feeling. Then I would drink that third beer, then that fourth beer to keep that feeling. Next thing you know, I could drink a case of beer very, very easy. I mean, I could literally drink a case of beer at one point in my life during a three or four hour period, whatever it was, whatever the time frame was, and probably not uh, be that intoxicated. I could drive and drink. Cause we did during that era of did, my life. Did you get, did you have bad hangovers? You know, I did, but didn't, I mean, um, I didn't have the, when people talk about hangovers, I'd get up the next day with a hangover and I'd have the little headache and, and I never took, I never drank alcohol to get rid of a hangover. 
And I hear people do that all the time. I would, I would just eat breakfast, go work out and be okay. But, um, you know, yeah, I had hangovers. The biggest thing that I had that I was unaware of was a lot of blackouts. I did things every day. I would come to the ballpark after doing something stupid and I'd ask teammates. And then a lot of them would, a lot of times it was Warren Brewster. I said, did I do that last night? And he'd go, yeah. Did I pinch that girl in her butt? Yep. Uh, did I follow that girl into the restroom? Yes. Uh, did I hit that guy? Yeah, you smoked him. Well, was it my fault? And they would laugh and say, well, no, he was being a, you know, he was being a hard butt, but you know, you didn't have to do it, but you did. A lot of people liked it or, and I was told many times that I never started a fight. I would love to see videos of myself because I can't believe that. I can't believe that I never started a fight. But I've been told that by a lot of teammates. Um, you probably your your mouth started it, but the other guy <laughs> swung. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I was I was told that it, that I had a lot of wit and humor when I was drinking, which I don't have when I'm not drinking. And I would I would say things to to people that would get them riled up and. Uh, sometimes my teammates said, I, we think you do it to, 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 to get them riled up. So you're exactly right. You know, I think the reason I ask you about hangovers is because I've always, I always felt that some people don't have as much negative effect on alcohol the next day as other people. Like I know myself, um, that if I got drunk, uh, my hangover was so bad that I wouldn't even drink for a couple of weeks. I wouldn't even have a drink. You know, well, I was just, one of the ones that didn't have bad hangovers. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, and it's funny you say that because my friends that were alcoholics, that's one similarity I, I saw in them that they seem to be like, guy, where you get all the energy and everything from? Where you, you look, I'd see them at breakfast and they're having coffee and big eggs and bacon and toast. And I'm like, and, and they're talking and I'm going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that was me. So, you know, that may be part of the the, the physiology of it. But, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, I know with I, I had a close friend who uh, his wife uh, and him were uh, we used to go out to dinner once a month on a on a Friday night. Same restaurant, actually, the restaurant my wife and I met at with a couple other couples and. Uh, they had a, a friend who had a band there. We would dance and stuff after dinner. And and I was standing there. The girls were talking and we were standing by the bathroom. He says, I got to go take a leak. And he leaves and he vanished. And his wife came up and said, you know where Bob is? I said, no. I, 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 he went to the bathroom. Let me go look. I went in there. He wasn't there. I didn't see him. We couldn't find him anywhere. He had to call her, her mother and father to come and pick her up. Um, and, uh, she didn't say, she said, oh, he just, we, we, we got in a little bit of an argument. Maybe he just got mad and left. Well, it goes forward. Eventually making a, a, a long story short, he, uh, he got addicted to drugs and he was, he was on crack cocaine. I mean, crack and cocaine. And, and he would, he eventually went into a facility and, uh, and when he got out, um, he was sober as all, as he said, you're never really sober, but he says, I was sober. And he said, and he became a counselor in the facility. And you know, a lot of us get into the helping professional field. 
you know, uh, the thing that, that hit me because I, you know, I knew nothing about drugs and effects of them or anything. And I said, let me ask you something. I mean, I said, you know, you didn't care about your wife. You didn't care about your family. You didn't care about your business. You didn't care about anything. You took off. He said, Mark, I went to the worst parts of Miami and I would buy drugs out the window. He says, places that you would never even know existed. And he said, he says, let me tell you what it's like to be an addict. And he said, the one thing is that drug means more to you than any of the other things you mentioned, more than your family, your wife. He says, it's like you're in the desert and you have no water for 10 days and you see a glass of water and you have to have it. He says, when you're addicted to drugs, that's what it's like. You feel like you have to have it more. It's more important than anything else in life. Well, you and know I what said, the definition of addiction is. It's a chronic relapse and disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite adverse consequences. Anyone that uses drugs have adverse consequences and, and any alcoholic. And so when he says that, I've dealt with so many people. When you look at methamphetamine, cocaine, and opiates, the, the use outweighs living. I think that's the difference of alcohol and drugs. And people hate it when I say that. But the, the use of drugs will outweigh the need of living. It is to get that drug, you'll do anything. That's why you see all these people uh, in Kensington going up there to get their, oh, get, no. get their uh, heroin. And they're going up there knowing it's laced with fentanyl. But there's rumors, and I think they're real, of people that will call for the Narcon, Narc, uh, you know, call for the police officer that has the Narcan shots to bring out and give to them, knowing they're going to do this drug that could kill them, but they need it so bad and they want the best. Well, that, that was me. That was what he said to me. Will of living. That, that, that's what hit home to me, what really became real when he said that to me. It gave me a perspective I never had. You know, like right. I never realized why people took it. Can't you stop? You know, all that. And he goes, no, you can't. You have to have it. And yeah. I said, uh, and then he made, I don't know if it's still the same, but I remember he told me, he says, you know, you get the big six months thing. He says, but a tremendous amount of people that go into rehab, uh, they fall off the wagon after six months. He said at, at his time, he said, the big thing is a year. If you could stay off of it for a year, he says, you got a shot. That's exactly true. We've heard that a lot of times. I, I'll take that a step farther with um, step further with the fact that when you're talking about certain drugs, such as meth, which is all over the place, and heroin and, and, and cocaine, as you said, which is back, I think, it, I think the treatment needs to be a year. Uh, it has to be intensive treatment. It can't be a 28-day treatment program. That's not enough for those people. They, their relapse is different than ours. I mean, you know, you 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 go into a uh, you go into an Al-Anon meeting, and you hear people talk about alcohol. You go into an uh, uh, a meeting when you're talking about you know people that are been using search, certain drugs such as uh, meth or or, or or heroin, and you get a heroin addict going into a meeting, and all of a sudden somebody's standing up there. And they're in an NA meeting and the guy's scratching right beside him because he's not clean. And another guy's nodding. They, that, that's given them the uh, uh, 
you know, right there watching them is giving them uh, an opportunity to, to sit there and look at that far too long. And then you're looking at a relapse and people don't understand that it's, it gives them the urge to use They're you know, those people are trying to get uh, clean, uh, healthy, and yet they're coming in there high. Well, sometimes I think we need to take a look at that. Is that productive? Because all of a sudden I'm in there and I'm watching a guy scratch. Is it creating a, 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 a you know, something, a, a, their withdrawal creating an urge for me to use is what I'm right. trying to say. And so I do believe the treatment, you're talking about a year. I think it takes a year. And I tell people that all the time, Mark, if you give me a year, one year of sobriety or staying clean, I promise you at the end of that year, you're going to look at me and say, how in the hell did you know I was going to be this good? Well, if you take a year, it takes a long time. You know, they, the reason we have 28 days treatment programs, they say it takes 28 days in the brain to, to change a habit. And this is a brain illness. That's the thing people don't understand about alcohol and drugs. It's a brain. Everything's about the brain. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Your addiction is brain related. And when you're talking about that's, you know, that's my heart. I worked that field. I was on the Pennsylvania board of drug and alcohol uh, for a while. And when I seen the opiate epidemic come and, in the early 90s and late 90s, early 2000s, just killing kids left and right and ruining baseball players, basketball players, football players. You know, these kids were going to school and alcohol had become a, a big topic. You know, you don't drive, don't drink. Let's put the car on the lawn and show you what happened with the car uh, on the on the property of the school where someone had a drunk driving accident, were killed and cars all mangled up. And then all these kids started going to parties and somebody said, take this pill. You'll feel better than you ever felt drinking. This is the best feeling you ever had. And your parents won't even know it. And I think a lot of guys, a lot of people got addicted that way. I know one young lady, I have her on my uh, refrigerator and she was one of the brightest people I ever met in my life. And I got the call. He's a former uh, major league player and uh, his wife is very involved in the addiction field now. And I went over to the house and they said, you're not going to get her to go to treatment. I said, if she's a young person, she's on drugs, I'll get her in treatment. And that's where people don't understand how we can work. Because I've been told by many parents, you're not going to get her in treatment. And I, with, within an hour of talking to her out back, we were heading down south, uh, uh, West Palm Beach to go into treatment. And this young lady got sober, got clean, and she was going to change the world. Many of us tried to. And uh, when I was being hired as an EAP, David Montgomery was a little leery in the beginning that my uh, recovery was going to try to get everybody sober in the organization. And I said, David, I'm not like that. I understand. And when when this young lady went around, her whole life was trying to help the attic. And that's how she died. She was out. She got married many years later. She was out in San Diego. Her servant or her Navy husband was off the coast somewhere. Um you know, doing exercises and was out at sea for three or four months. And she walked down the street and somebody offered her a drug. And she said, do you know what, who you offer? That nearly killed me. And I've been clean. Let me help you get clean. So every day she would talk to this guy, trying to help him get clean till one day she took it from him and OD, and over and OD that day and died. Oh, wow. uh, the power of drug addiction 
is enormous. And if you do not understand and go through the program and as you asked me those questions, I was very impressed because you're so right. Uh, loneliness is a drug addict's worst friend. Wow. Naturally, there's other triggers, but th- I believe loneliness is one of the biggest ones. And here's another thing. It's hard to find the attic if you don't know what they look like when they're high. Because when they're high, they're more normal than they are when they're not high. So when you're looking for the addict to talk to the addict and try to get him clean, you're wasting your time when you're talking to him when he's high because he looks normal. The opiate addict and and the meth addict, unless you know what you're looking at when you look at the eyes, unless you know exactly what you're looking at. But when you try to get them sober, you're going to get them at their worst when they're withdrawing and they're going to be terrible to be around. So yeah, that, that year is, I, I don't know why we haven't gotten smart enough in this country to understand it takes a full year for anybody to really get to the, to the position they need to be in to, to maintain some sobriety. And then it's one day at a time. But for those people in particular that are addicted to those substances, it's, it's definitely a year of treatment. Wow. Wow. Thanks so much, Dickie. Yeah, you, you know, had Dickie, some tremendous insights. Yeah, I, you know, we have a lot of people that are in the game. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about Dallas, I have so many fond memories of getting to know him and your organization. And you said John Wayne, you know, when you mentioned it. And for everybody out there, Dallas was a big, strong booming voice personality when he came into a room, but what a heart he must have had to stand by you and take you on this journey that, that got you where you are now. And maybe, you know, talk a little bit about that before. You know, in Dallas's book, he says, I'm in his book more than anybody. Apparently. Yeah. He said, I signed Dickie. I drafted him. I signed him. I traded for him. I traded him. I signed him back and I traded him again for himself, got him back. <laughs> <laughs> so Dallas, I do believe, and, 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 you know, I, I talk about the 1980 pitches though. I don't really think it affected uh, the world series outcome and people, you know, argue me, argue with me about that, but that's just my perception. But in this case right here, I really believe that I got extra years in the major leagues only because of Dallas Green. Uh, You know, one of my greatest friends in life, and he passed away with brain cancer, was Johnny Oates. In 1988, after, you know, Dallas had hired him as a bullpen coach, and we would sit and talk in a bullpen. And then when I'm trying to get back in baseball in 1988, uh, uh, Oates, he was the manager. I'd had my best year in 1987. And Oates, he was the manager. We had collusion and all that. I'm up in Rochester with him, and we basically lived together. He, 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 we would sit and talk about the Lord. We'd sit and talk about baseball. It's the only two topics we ever really had. And we had a player on that team that Johnny was concerned about that i just seen a wonderful uh, 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 Netflix of his dad, and it was Dale Barra. Dale Barra yeah. said he's been yeah. sober and clean. I was so happy. He looked so good. Yeah. Uh, and talked about, you know, what it did damage it did to his career. And I, and, and I think about the damage it did to my career. 
and I'm scarred for life at my heart. And that's kind of what Dale said the other night when I watched the Yogi on Netflix. But I was so impressed with Dale Barra because I remember Johnny praying for him. And I, I remember thinking, you know, you think he's doing something? And Johnny's like, yeah, you should know. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to see another teammate sometimes when you're playing if they, they can hide it. But just listening to Dale, I thought of Johnny. The one thing Johnny used to talk about to me a lot was Dallas and him would have conversations and about me. And he said, Dallas always thought, you know, he had a soft spot in his heart for me, but he was hard on me. But the thing about Dallas Green that, that I really believe is he, he, in 1987, I called him up. I didn't have a job. And he said, called me pie. Everybody called me pie because Pete Rose nicknamed me that. He goes, pie. He said, how's your grandmother? I said, she's doing great. I said, how's Sylvie? He said, she's great. I can't sign you though. I got your agent out here trying to parade Dick out. I mean, uh, uh, Andre Dawson around and wants me to sign Andre Dawson to a blank contract. And I, I just can't sign any more free agents. I said, Dallas, I'm not a real free agent. Cleveland let me go. They just didn't release me. And he said, uh, I, I just can't do that. And I said, hey, are you wearing that World Series ring? He goes, Pi, you threw one dead gum pitch. And I started laughing. He started laughing. He said, no, I can't tell you to get in that 280 Datsun of yours. And I can't tell you not to drive to Arizona, but I can tell you there'll be a room there for you, but I'm not going to pay you. And you better be in the best shape ever. Boom, he hung the phone up. And I got my car packed and went out to Arizona and basically tried out for the team and may, had my best year in the big leagues. And of course he traded me to the Tigers and then traded me back for myself. But um, what people don't know about Dallas is if he loves you, he's going to be very hard on you, expect more from you. And that's when I knew he really loved me and I loved him, but he pulled me, he pulled me off the streets of Cincinnati and put me into a rehab. Many GMs would have probably got me sober and released me. And when I came back pitching bad, he stayed with me and then he moved me and then brought me back. So yeah. I think I got an extra four or five years out of the major leagues only because of Dallas Green. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, guys, we kept Dickie for well over an hour. That was, uh, we, we appreciate you opening up like that. I, especially around the holidays here, people, uh, I think your story will help yeah. out a lot of people inside and outside of baseball. Well, the one thing that resonated with me other than that the date will stick in my head, April 9th, 1983, you said that in the first three seconds and it's stuck in my head for the, the whole hour. That was your, your first day. Um, That's my sobriety date. Yeah. I, I, but the, you, you made mention of your mom in there and I hope uh, the young kids out there understand that, you know, we're a different generation right now. I always get asked, are, are kids different? No, I think parenting's different. And somewhere in your upbringing, your mom and dad uh, had that influence on you where your first thought when you went in there was you were embarrassed for your mom. And, and, and I was thinking, putting myself in your shoes, um, that, that would have been my first thought too, the, the, my, my parents. And I uh, hope the kids pay attention to that. There, there's a different generation of parenting, the parents too, that you know, we need to get back to that where, where, where parents are, are doing that with kids. So I, I'm, I'm so thankful for hearing your story, Dickie. I appreciate you sharing with us today. Yes, you know, sir. And, and, you know, we do talk on here all the time about those who truly love you and care about you, tell you the truth and, exactly. and they will do everything they can as painful as it may seem at that time to make you the best you can be. 
and uh, we need to go back to that in our world, and people need to be able to accept the truth. Because well, you know, I'm going to give you this one last thing. Everyone wants to be loved, belong, and be capable. It's just the way we're built as human beings. And if you don't get that at home, sometimes these kids will go out and try to find that. And people drink to feel good, not feel bad. People do drugs to feel good, not feel bad. And and you don't know which one of those kids are going to run into an addiction. So the home life is extremely important. But I, my encouragement to people that don't have that home life is to find the Lord. Because God's always there for you. Yeah. I think it's a great, great spot to, to close out on it. Uh, Mark and Will, any last notes to our audience? Anything you guys want to leave us with? Dickie carried us on this one. Yeah, I think this was uh, one of our most important shows for sure, because this is going to have more impact. And like Will said, you know, we're going into the holidays now and people feel a lot more stressed during this time and and people that have a tendency to, to try to find a way out. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think if, if they turn their focus to the Lord, um, uh, miracles can happen no matter what situation you're in. Yeah. Well, Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's a good end. That's a good ending. And, uh, to our audience, you guys know what to do. Um, this one won't be too hard to give this one five stars, write some comments. If you have questions, put them in there. We'll, we'll respond to them in writing around the air and blackout coffee. We'll keep supporting you. You keep supporting us. David at checkout, get you 20% and stocking stuff for guys. Ted Kubiak's book, Old School and How to Field a Ground Ball. Can't get any better than that. And uh, for, for that, uh, a day at the art, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Every show just keeps getting better and better. And to Dickie Knowles, thanks so much for, for opening up to us and sharing with us today your journey. My pleasure, guys. And yeah, uh, we enjoyed it. I'll be in touch with you guys. Keep yep. going. Yep. We will. Thanks, Dickie. Thank we will. you, Dickie. And anytime you want to come back, you got an open invitation. You just call, and uh, we'll get we'll get you on. We'd love love to hear from you. Yes, sir. Yeah, and then after you pick up trout at the airport. And- <laughs> <laughs> All righty. <laughs> hey, I'll pick him up. Oh, yeah, would Lord. I'll pick him up in a minute. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> we'll leave we'll leave the audience on that tease right there. So we gave a little insider information there. But with that episode three sixty eight in the books, a day at the art, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will, real voices of the game. We appreciate you guys. Yeah.